0: Chapter 2, cruising right along. If anybody needs a Bible, sorry I forgot the Bible announcement, just raise your hand. Thanks. In case anybody's wondering why these guys are walking up and down the aisles. Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." The book of Revelation is a mysterious book. That's what attracts people to it and also scares people away from it. And although there are some things that are in it that seem to be peculiar to our understanding, some sequences that are seemingly uh, evasive towards our intellect, yet, nevertheless, by and large, the book of Revelation is not a hard book. To understand, at least in its outline and in its various sections. In chapter 1, verse 19, if you just flip back with your eyes a couple of verses, Jesus himself gives us the outline of the book. He tells John there to write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Hereafter. That the book of Revelation basically breaks up into three sections. Past tense, the things which John had seen. Present tense, the things which are presently. And future tense, the things which shall be hereafter. So, section 1, the things which were, or the things that he had seen. It's all of chapter 1. What had John seen? Jesus Christ. Resurrected glorified, that's what chapter 1 is all about. If you look in verse 2 there, John talks about how he bare record of the Word of God, past tense. Verses 5 and 6 talks about Jesus and all that he had done and accomplished on behalf of his people. It was something that had already been accomplished that John was witness to. So, the things which John had seen, Revelation chapter 1. Then, the things which are presently, That's chapters 2 and 3. Seven letters to seven churches. Why? Because when John wrote the book of Revelation, that's where he was presently. He was in the church age. The period of grace when God was working through this entity called the church upon earth. A time wherein our sins were judged prior to the birth of it and where God is building this bride for His Son, called out ones that are both Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, all are one in this body of Christ, the church, the church age. So, seven letters to seven churches, which speak to us of the church age in all of its progression throughout history, and all the things that affect the church from that time even to this time, all things that are, for John... And then the third section of the book of Revelation is the things which shall be hereafter or after the church age. Once this time of the gathering of the church is complete, what will happen next? And so he says, write the things which shall be hereafter. It's the Greek word metatauta. And it means after this or after these things. And when you get to chapter 4... Verse 1, it begins with the word after this, or after these things, metatauta. Chapter 4, through the end of the book, is all what takes place after the church age. So, three basic breakdowns. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Now, Chapters 4 through the end of the book also break down into their own little things. I won't take the time to go through that tonight because we're not in chapter 4. But we will uh, go through that. and I'll, I know you'll, you'll be well versed in this outline by the time we get through the book. But tonight, as we begin chapter 2, we enter section 2 of this book of Revelation. That is, the things which are. The church age. Seven letters to seven churches, which are more or less report cards or assessments, evaluations, that are given to these seven churches so that they might know where they stand. Now, there are several different ways that we can look at these letters and interpret them and apply them, and all of them are valid and useful to us. First of all, these letters can be interpreted interpreted, and, and, and looked at and applied literally. That is, these seven churches were actually seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor in John's day that had real issues, they were real entities, and they had real identities, and Jesus is speaking to them personally. So we can understand who these churches are and what they were dealing with in a very literal sense, because the book of Revelation, it's literal. Also, it can be applied and interpreted locally. That is, that the things that are contained within these seven letters to these seven churches can apply with as much validity to any church today as they did to those churches then. Churches today face the same challenges and victories that these churches faced then. They, faced, they had the same strengths and weaknesses. And so all of these letters are useful in assessing the quality and the worth of any church today, including ours, the one that we are a part of here. We can apply the things that are written in these letters to what we are experiencing, and we can know how did Jesus feel about our church. We can know what's a good church. What are we looking for in a solid church? What do we want to be if we want to be a good church? Also, we can apply and interpret these things personally. See, churches are made up of Christians. Individual followers of Christ. And the strength and reality of any individual's Walk with Christ is going to ultimately reflect the strength and the quality of the church as a whole. So, very really, we can look at these seven letters and we can let them shine their light upon our lives and our walk with Christ, and we can see how we're doing personally. It's not just to the church at large. But it's a very personal thing to look at and say, well, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Where am I excelling? And where is it that I have maybe backslidden in my heart? Or where there's something that isn't right and that I need God to do some adjusting and some work within my life. These letters are designed to search us practically and to assess us individually. And so it can be interpreted personally. And then finally... Um, they can also be interpreted prophetically. And how's that? Although John maybe didn't even realize it at the time that he was receiving these things, these seven churches, we'll discover, actually represent seven different sections of church history as we know it from our vantage point looking backwards. See, when John wrote it, he was at the very beginning of the church age. The year was around 90 A.D. We're way on the other side in the year 2010, almost 2011, looking back at what has taken place throughout the past 2,000 years. And so we see the the progression historically of the turns and twists that the church has taken by and large. And it's amazing that as we go through and we look at these seven letters to these seven churches, we'll discover that they are prophetic in their progression that that each church represents a specific segment or stage of church history and what took place within that age and how the church changed grew or you know, fell backwards. And it's very interesting as, as we go through these things to compare what is written here concerning each church and then holding it side by side with what has taken place historically and then seeing the acuteness of how, how tightly those two things fit together and see what has happened. And we'll see that certainly as we go, the prophetic uh, you know, look at how these things happen. Now, As far as the format of these letters, how Jesus addressed the churches, they are very systematic. It's a very simple study as you go through. All of these letters basically follow the same format. All of them have, first of all, a divine salutation. Jesus opens each letter by giving, addressing who He is and saying, you know, these things saith He, and then He gives some attribute of Himself, something that we saw in Revelation chapter 1 that clearly identifies that Jesus Christ is the one who is writing the letter to the churches. And all of the letters have that divine salutation. They also have a positive affirmation. That is, there's something that Jesus will write to the church that He likes. Something that He says, this is good that you're doing, or this is pleasing, or this is fruitful, or this is beneficial, in some way that He gives to them and He says, this is the right thing that you're doing. Next, there's a negative observation. Now, not all of the letters have a negative observation. Praise the Lord, you know, uh, that that it is possible to please God. You know, sometimes it seems like we feel like we can't, but we can. He's pleased, you know, but there's a negative observation. He tells the truth. If there's something that's amiss or something that will cause destruction, he doesn't just push it under the rug and pretend it's not there. But he addresses it. He tells them that it's there. Next, there's a corrective exhortation. That is, how do we fix the thing that's gone amiss? How can we address this inconsistency or this destructive behavior that's crept in, so to speak? And then finally, he closes each letter with an eternal motivation. An eternal motivation. He reminds us of why. Why are we seeking Him? Why are we calling ourselves Christians? Why are we living like pilgrims and strangers upon this planet? Because we're looking for something that's eternal, an exceedingly great, eternal weight of glory. And He, in each letter, gives them a different nugget, a separate inspiration, something to motivate them to walk with Him and to live before Him in the most perfect way that we can. But Tonight, we'll take the first of these seven letters. Now, some weeks, maybe we'll try to, you know, get through two of these things. But, you know, Christmas is upon us. I see a lot of tired eyes. You know, I'm not going to belabor you. Okay, we're going through three of these things tonight, you know. No. Tonight, we'll just take the first one, the first seven verses, the letter to the church at Ephesus. We'll call it the Zealous Church. And John begins... There in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write... Now, the word "angel," and if you recall from our our study last week you know when when Jesus in, you can actually just look at it, verse twenty of chapter one, Jesus tells John, and he says that the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. You recall John saw that in the hand of Christ were seven stars and when he saw Jesus he was walking in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks and and Jesus tells John and he says those seven stars that you saw in my hand are the angels of the seven churches. And the word angel, it's the word messenger. And it could either, you could either look at it mystically and say, okay, well, there's an angel over the church that is kind of dictating and, and moving. You could do that if you want to, but the, the better way to look at it when it says angel or messenger is that it's speaking of the pastor, the, the overseer, the one that God has called, in a sense, over that church. The, the reason I say that is because God never gives a message to a man to give to an angel. It's always God giving a message to an angel to give to a man. So God doesn't come to John and say, Hey John, I want you to talk to this angel for me because I can't get through to him for some reason, you know. But it does happen that sometimes God has to go to someone like John and say, John, I need you to go talk to that pastor because I can't get through to him for some reason. You know, that does happen, you know. So most likely this isn't an angel in the sense of what we would think of as an angelic being, but it's the messenger or the one who speaks unto the church. And he says unto the messenger of the church of Ephesus right And then he says, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was a great seaport city. It was a hub of business and commerce and culture. It was huge. It was a very immoral city. It was dominated by the worship of the fertility goddess Diana. You know, perhaps you recall from our study in the book of Acts, when Paul went there and he birthed the church in that region, and people were getting saved, and people were turning from Diana. This man, Dimitri, the silversmith, who made his living by creating these idols of this goddess Diana. He called together all the craftsmen and people of like craft, and he said, this man Paul is corrupting our city, bringing in this Christian doctrine. And our commerce, our business, our idol business is in threat here. And he caused an uproar within the city, and a riot ensued where the Ephesians began to shout out and say, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And that was what they were given to, this worship of this fertility goddess Diana. And and when the church was birthed, it was started, of course, we know, by Paul. And Paul spent more time establishing and pastoring the church at Ephesus than he did at any of the other places that he went. Three years he spent teaching them the word of God. He said to them, I have given you the full counsel of God. It's the first time in the Bible that the church was too large to meet in a home that Paul had to rent the school of Tyrannus in order to teach the people. There were so many. The the pastors after Paul were Timothy. Uh, Tradition tells us that the Apostle John, the one who's giving this message to to this, uh, in fact, he might even be the one receiving this message and that he was the pastor of that church for a while. All of these men spent time pastoring the great church at Ephesus. And of the seven that are listed here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, this church, the one at Ephesus, was probably the largest, the most influential, and probably the one from which all of the other six were birthed. They all probably came from this one church. And what we know of them is that they were very strong in their works and in their faith. They were very zealous in their Christianity and in their approach towards ministry, they were very effective and in many ways they were a very good and solid church. But there was one problem. Their strength, their great strength became their weakness. Notice that Jesus identifies himself to them as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Dick Helverson, former chaplain to the US Senate, wrote these words, and listen to them very carefully. He wrote in the beginning the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. As true as that statement is for the modern American church, it could well have been said about the church at Ephesus. Their strength in right, solid, biblical things fostered within them a spirit of independence, where they were doing the right things but they were doing them from a wrong motivation. It makes it very fitting that Jesus addressed this church as the holder, the one who holds the stars, and the one who walks in the midst of these things. You see, the church as an entity, as a body at large, belongs to Jesus Christ. It's His, by deed. He owns it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said to His disciples, "...upon this rock..." I will build my church. It belongs to him. He owns it. This church here that we're sitting in, that we're a part of, it belongs to Christ. He owns it. Not only does it belong to Christ, but it also exists for Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse uh, 18 says that, that we, the church, are his inheritance. That we're not our own, Colossians tells us that, that we are bought with a price, and that the church is actually his inheritance. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, Paul, writing about this, he says that it will, the church will be presented to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That it exists for him, and it will be presented to him. It exists for him. Not only that, but the message that we bring, and what we're all about, is Christ. He said to his disciples that when two or more, or two or three, are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Again, he said in John's Gospel, he said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. It's all about Christ, this thing that we're a part of, this church. It's all for Him, it's owned by Him, it exists for Him, it's messages about Him. And finally, our source, the very source of the church's light and power and effectiveness is Christ. It's all His. In John chapter 15, you know that famous verse where Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, and you are the branches. As the branch cannot bear fruit from itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. And and, and we know this, that our source, we can do nothing apart from Christ, and the church can do nothing. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he holds all things together by the word of his power. And so the very source of the church's life is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. And apart from that, it is an absolutely dead entity. It is simply an institution, an organization, or worse of all, an enterprise. And isn't it amazing how, you know, that he which is to be the center, or the one who's in the midst of the church, can so easily be pushed aside And the church can continue functioning in all of its present capacities and yet the one whom is the source and for whom it all is can be pushed to the outside. But Jesus reminds them appropriately that it is He that holds the stars and walks in the midst. But there are several things that He commends them for. The positive affirmation, if you would. Look with me at verse 2. He tells them, I know thy works, And thy labor and thy patience. First of all, he tells them that he notices their works, their labor, and their patience, or their perseverance. Paul the Apostle wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And in chapter 1, verse 3, he said these words He said, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, and your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Paul, in writing to the you know Thessalonican church, he links the works that the church was doing to their faith, and then he links their labor to their love, and he links their patience to their hope. Notice those three things: faith, love, and hope, or as we you know more commonly know it as is faith, hope, and love. What are those things? It's the fruit of the spirit, right? And the fruit of faith, hope, and love produces outwardly works, labor, and patience or perseverance. And what Jesus is essentially saying to the church at Ephesus is that you guys are fruitful. That when I look at your church and I see everything that's going on there, you are bearing fruit. That it isn't for nothing. That it isn't all in vain. That the labor that you're, 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 you're toiling under and the work that you're doing and the patience that you're holding, that it's not serving no purpose, but it is doing something. And there's fruit in it. It is effective. It's happening. And it is seen and recognized. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so Jesus commends this church for this work that they're ensuing upon. This labor and this patience, this perseverance. But then he goes on to commend them, and he says, And that you cannot bear them which are evil, and that you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. The second thing that he commends them for is that they didn't bear evil within their church. And that they tested those that made claims of Christianity and more so of apostleship or claims of ministry or calling of God. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some that would read this, that would really look at what Jesus is saying here and take some offense to it. We live in the age of tolerance. When everything is okay. Everything is justifiable. There's a reason why everybody behaves the way they behave, and and there's really nothing that we would rebuke or we, we just redirect behavior. We don't approach it head on, but we redirect, you know, we kind of we ignore evil, but we don't cast out evil. But isn't it interesting that Jesus praises them because it says that they didn't bear evil? See, our philosophy in our day is that you never call anyone evil. That you never say anything that might offend someone or make someone feel uncomfortable or might ruffle their feathers. That you never reprove someone for their behavior or for what they're doing. We don't call someone an alcoholic or we don't call it alcoholism. We call it a disease. Because it's a disease. We don't call it, we don't call it you know homosexuality. We call it a lifestyle. You know they've chosen it's an alternative lifestyle. We don't call it homosexuality. We don't say it was adultery. We say they were having an affair. <laughs> and, and everything is sugar coated because we're not going to reprove anybody or or, or or call things what they are or call sin sin because that's offensive. Or rather we'll give it another lame, and we'll redirect it. We'll redirect that thing. But no, Jesus commends this church because He says you cannot bear those that are evil. He calls it evil. The Bible calls it sin, and Christ commends the church that calls it what it is and doesn't bear it or allow it. He also commends them for testing or for judging, and there's your other word that you can get offended at, those that say they are apostles and are not, and finding them liars. Uh, again, any time that you reprove anybody or even bring up an issue, what do you hear? What's the first thing you hear? Judge not, lest you be judged. Right? Judge not, lest you be judged. Everybody knows Matthew chapter seven verse one: Judge not, lest you be judged. You know, that's what people say when they're seeking to avert you know controversy over a, a, a behavior within their life. You go to him and you say, "Hey, you're smoking pot. I thought you were a Christian, didn't you give your life to?" Hey, man, judge not, lest he be judged. <laughs> You know, I remember one time we were street witnessing in Rochester years ago, you know, and we, we would go and we would just, uh, we would go to like the, um, we called it the red light district, you know, cause that it was like where all the bars were and all the smoke shops and everything. And so we'd go down there on a Friday night and we would just share with people. We'd, we'd always bring these tracks that had a big question mark. We'd never give them away. We would just say, Hey, do you know the big question? And everybody would want to hear what the big question was. And we would just say, if you died right now, would you go to heaven or hell? That's the big question. And one time, this guy, he came right out of a bar, and he had a girl under each arm. And he comes out, and he was loaded. I mean, his eyes were, he was shot. And we said, hey, have you ever heard the big question? He goes, you know. And so we said, if you died, and he goes, oh, praise God, brother, I'm a Christian. (laughs) He said, oh, you're, you are. Well, you're coming out of a bar and you have a girl under each arm. And he looked at us and goes, judge not lest ye be judged, man. Judge not lest ye be judged. And that's what people will say when they're seeking to avert, you know, some kind of a conflict over something that they're doing. The problem is that they've failed to read the rest of the chapter. Because when you go on and you continue reading in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said in the same Breath that he said, judge not lest ye be judged, he also said this in verse 15. He said, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them or examine them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, and listen to verse 20, Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Interesting. By your fruits you shall know them. By examining them or by judging. By comparing what fruit looks like to what you're seeing in someone's life, that will tell you if someone really is walking with the Lord, if they really are a Christian. And not only is that not condemned, it is commended by Christ to this church that they cannot bear those that are evil and that you have tested or judged those that say and found them to be liars. And that was commendable in the sight of God. There was an issue in the Corinthian church where there was a man who was apparently having an affair with his stepmother. And Paul got word of it and he wrote a letter to the church and he said, you guys are crazy that you haven't thrown this man out. He says, I'm not even there and I've already judged in my mind and I think that you should throw the guy out and deliver him unto Satan that he might learn that you know to, to live rightly before the Lord. And then he gives them this counsel as he talks to the church there 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. He says I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet now listen because this is good instruction this will help you. Not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters for then you must needs go out of the world. Paul said, if you were going to try to avoid fellowship with every sinner, you would have to leave the world. Because it's impossible to get away. So what does he mean then? But now, verse 11, I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one... No, not to eat. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do to judge those that are without? I don't judge the people that are outside of the church, those in the world. He says, do do not ye judge them that are within? In other words, it isn't an issue of saying, well, I don't judge people or I'm not supposed to judge people. No, if someone calls themselves a brother or says that they are a Christian, that you are to judge them. That you are to compare the fruit of their lives with the fruit that you see in Christ, in Scripture. And to say, hey, you call yourself a Christian, but you are not a Christian. You're not living like a Christian. And you need to re-examine what you call the faith of Jesus Christ, because your life is not lining up. There was a series of deaths in the, you know, the, the hospital in the, the city of Binghamton, New York. And they investigated to figure out what was going on. And what they came down to is that in the baby's formula they were substituting by by accident salt for sugar. And it was dehydrating the babies and it was killing them. And it was a very simple mistake of taking two things that looked very much alike, but on the inside were very different. And it caused death to happen to an organism. And that can happen to a church. is that when a church allows and bears evil or bears falsity for the sake of attendance then what can happen is that little leaven leavens the whole lump and it dehydrates the life of Christ out of the church and it brings death to it. And Jesus commended the church at Ephesus because they didn't bear those that were evil or those that made false claims of apostleship. He found them false. And Jesus commends them for this behavior. Then he goes on in verse 3 as he continues to commend them and he says that they had born. That means to to bear up under a load. When you, you bear a burden. He says, he says that you have borne. And you have patience. Or perseverance. And for my name's sake you have labored. And you have not fainted. He reiterates That this was a church that went to the wall for the Lord, that they were consistently working to the point of exhaustion, and it was done in His name. And He recognized it and He commends them for it, that they were a church that bore up the load. But then in verse 4, He gives to them the negative observation. He says, Nevertheless, even though you have all of that good—that you're bearing fruit, that you're testing the spirits, that you're keeping your your, your patience and bearing the load—nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because he says you have left your first love. Now, notice he doesn't say that you've lost your first love. They didn't lose their first love; they left it. Christ never went anywhere. He stayed in the same spot. The love of God was demonstrated purely in Him, not to be taken from them. But it says that they left it. Something, somewhere along the way, their motivation slowly, subtly began to change. When they first started off, when Paul first brought to them the gospel of Christ, he says that when I preached, I preached nothing unto you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And as Paul came to them and preached to them the love of Christ, this work of the Spirit of God was birthed out of nothing more than the love of Jesus Christ being manifested to the sinful people there in Ephesus. But as the church there began to grow, as fruit began to be born, as things started happening and other churches started to be planted and things started to grow and go out from there, subtly, slowly, something began to change. It wasn't so much about Jesus anymore and what he'd done, but it had somehow become about something else. The motivation changed from simply just wanting to know Christ, to want to understand more of his love and be changed by it and to live in it and to experience the life of God that's given through Christ. But perhaps maybe there was an element of, well, hey, this is exciting having all of these people come. What can we do to make the church grow even more? How can we make the church maybe a little bigger? Or maybe their desire changed from simply wanting to please Christ to maybe wanting to have a reputation and be pleasant in the eyes of others. Maybe somewhere in the church they had their focus on what was going on in Jerusalem. And maybe in their mind, we could be as big as the church in Jerusalem. We could be what they meant when they said that it will go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Man, Ephesus will be the kingpin of all the churches in Asia Minor. And slowly their focus changed from one of just loving Christ and worshipping Him. To wanting something else. And yet they were still doing everything right. On the outside, in the appearance of the observers, by casual observation, everything in the church was right and in order. The bulletin was probably as thick as a penny saver with things that the churches was doing. You could look at all the home Bible studies and all the things that were going on, all of the activities, all of the outreaches and all the missionaries to pray for. You could go through the thing and you'd say, wow, this church is hopping, it's happening. You would look at their service and what was going on in their organizational structure, and you could say, this is working like a well-oiled machine. God is here. There's a program for every need. Every seat is filled. There's constantly a need for expansions. Every week, people are going forward. They're giving their lives to Christ. They're being baptized. The teaching is incredible. Would you hear this man Paul and the things that he's saying and how he's bringing to life the scriptures and the word of God to us? The doctrine is perfectly sound. The history of the church is impeccable. There's no divisions, no splits, no controversies. Everything, as you looked at this church, you would say, this church is alive. This is a good church. But yet, deep in the recesses of the heart of the church, in a place that no one could see through just casual observation, where only God can see, the very source and the reason for everything good that was going on there was out of place. The ministry was moving forward like a well-oiled machine, but the motive behind it had gone missing. Something changed along the way. Whereas once, it was all about Jesus. The talk when people would fellowship and interact was all about Jesus. The doodles that people would make as they listened to a seemingly long sermon would be Jesus in big bubble letters and people would write it on their shoes as they had their leg crossed over and they'd just pencil Jesus on the bottom of their shoes and what was on their mind, the song in their heart was Jesus. Life was found and driven in the people because of their fellowship with Jesus. The worship was passionate and unreserved because of the people's love for Jesus. But somewhere in all of it, somehow it became about church instead of about Christ. The conversation became, as they would talk to each other, you know, our church is really great, isn't it? We have a really good church. They would talk to others and they'd say, you should come check out our church. Our service is very contemporary. It's hip. It's with the culture. It's really happening. The music at our church is really good. You're going to love it. It's hopping." The people that we have, you're just going to love the people at our church. Our, our pastor is rare and gifted. You're going to love this man, Paul, and, and just the way he expounds. You're going to love it. But, but do you hear the difference between Jesus, the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, and the church, the life of the church? Everything can look the same outwardly. But yet the motive that drives it inwardly is amiss. Something is wrong. And in this church, the church at Ephesus, this great church with such good roots, stopped being about Jesus and it became something else. An old teacher in a seminary once told his students that the progression of all revivals, awakenings, and movements is always the same. It starts with a man. Called by God, in love with God, changed by Christ, and enamored by Christ. But how God uses that man and blesses and begins to save, the man becomes a movement. A movement of the Spirit of God as Jesus is manifested in salvation springs forth. But it isn't long before that movement becomes a machine. It becomes mechanical. All of the things keep going and keep happening and the machine kind of goes on to autopilot and that that machine soon turns into a monument. A monument to the name of the man, you know, that, uh, that, that started this great thing and that it isn't long after that point before it becomes a mausoleum. Before it's dead and buried and in the grave and what was once a powerful move of the Spirit of God is now nothing but a heap of ashes. Why? Because they left their first love. Once the focus becomes something other than Jesus, the movement slowly but surely will die. Because Christ is the life of the church. And that's exactly what Jesus tells them will happen in verse 5. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. The candlestick, of course, is the source of light. Jesus said he was the light of the world. And once that candlestick begins to shine something else other than the light of Jesus Christ, It's corrupted and it isn't long before that candlestick will begin to change, to dim and fade and ultimately it will be snuffed out because it's all about Jesus. There's nothing else for the church to be about or to be enamored with but Christ. So what does he tell them to do in light of this danger that's facing them? Although everything seems to be working just fine. As God looks in and He says there's something wrong, what does He tell them to do? Again in verse 5, the first thing He tells them is to remember. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Call to mind what it was like in the days of simplicity. When there was fresh discovery, when you were excited and zealous about the things you were hearing that were bringing your heart to life. Remember the dangerous wonder that you had as you were discovering the power of this omnipotent God with whom nothing was impossible. Remember the days of passionate worship when your hands would be raised and you didn't care that people could hear you singing or what they thought of you as they saw you standing before the Lord, wondering why are they doing that, why are their hands in the air, but you didn't care because the songs that were being sung were were words that were expressing the things that you couldn't formulate yourself and you were so in love with Jesus. Remember what it was like when you couldn't wait for church. When you sat in the front row and and, and you you were excited because you got a new notebook and you were going to fill it up with things to pray in and work through in your life and you just wanted to hear more and you ate it up and you couldn't get enough, remember what it was like. Remember what it was like when you used to stay up late and you would talk for hours about the things that God was teaching you. The hope that you had of the things that He might do within your life and, and through your life as you would just for, for hours on end sit over coffee, fellowshipping and laughing with the saints of, of the things of Christ. And then you would leave there and you would be enamored at what God was doing in your life and just reflecting on the fact that you know God and that you're saved and you're going to heaven. He says, remember what that was like. Remember what it was like when you, when you used to lay in bed before you went to sleep and think about the rapture. That maybe right this second, right now, the trumpet would sound. Maybe it'll be right now. 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 You know, and, you, Lord, and you're and you just excited it could happen at any time that the heavens would open and we'll be caught up into the presence of the Lord. But as you sit in your place, in your machine, and in your ministry, and in the busyness of your life, you look and you say, that's a distant memory. I'm not sure that I remember what that's like anymore. But he says, call to mind those early days. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember what it was like when it was just about Jesus. And then once you remember, he says, repent, turn back. Go back there. Don't let the past be the past. But go back to the simple faith. The pure love. The first works. He says, do the first works. You used to be a Mary sitting at the feet of jesus but then you became a martha busy about his business and he's saying go back go back to the place where you were receiving the one thing that was needful and then the third thing he tells them to do is to redo remember repent and then redo do the things that you did at first when when it was real, when the zeal of the Lord was the thing that drove you, the love of Christ constrained you, do those things again. I know I shared with you the story before of, you know, when Georgia and I were kind of newly married, I think we only had Hosanna at the time. And I was in the washing machine room, you know, and I was getting something out of the dryer, and she came in with a big load of laundry. And as she walked into the room I stood right in her way and I blocked her passage to the washing machine. And, and as she stood. Stood there holding this thing, and her arms growing tired, and I wouldn't let her buy. And and I would stand, and and she would say, "Let me, let me buy, let let me buy." And I'd say, "I want a kiss, I want a kiss." And she'd say, "Let me buy, let me buy." And and essentially, she was saying, "I'm serving you, I'm serving you. Would you let me buy? I'm trying to serve you." And I was saying, "Love me, love me. I, I just want you to love me." And there's many people like that. They're serving the Lord. They're busy about his business. They're operating within the machine of ministry, but Jesus is standing by, and and, and we say, "Lord, you're in my way. You're you're standing in the way." And he's saying, "Just love me, just love me. I, I don't need my laundry done. I don't need that done, but I need you, and you need me. That's what you need. Sit at my feet. Remember, repent, redo the things that you did at first. Pure ministry." And pure life is birthed out of love for and from Jesus Christ. And it can come from no other source. We'll talk about the Nicolaitans when we get to Pergamus, But in verse 7, he closes with an eternal motivation. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Notice that now it's addressed to the individual. That it isn't any longer the message to the messenger or to the church, but now it's whoever has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's to all of us. And then he goes on, To him that overcometh, to him that wins, to him that hears and heeds the thing that I'm telling him to do, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Do you notice the play on words there? The tree of life, he says, that's in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree of life. The thing that we crave, the thing that you and I crave the most, whether you know it or not, is life. That's what we long for. That's what people are looking for when they chase after wealth, or when they chase after youth, or when they chase after some energy or power. They're looking for life. That's what we want. The strength of our body drives is a direct reflection of our survival needs. Why? Because, you know, the air drive, the strongest drive that we have is the air drive. Why? Because we want to survive. We want life. Our, our hunger drive, when we're hungry, we've got to get food. Why? Because we want to sustain life. Our water drive, our thirst drive, and, and the, the most important of our drives is all of them are for life because that's the thing that we hunger for. We want life. And now, Jesus talks about the tree of life. And there's something that when we hear those words, the tree of life, the source, the the thing that grows upon it, the very fruit and essence of the thing that we need the most, the life of God. And we say, we want it. Lord, Lord, give me the fruit from this tree, this tree of life. And yet the Bible tells us, John chapter 1, verse 4, it says that in Him was life and that that life was the light of men. Again, in First John, chapter 1, John writes, and he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. That Jesus is, in some way, a reflection of the tree of life. That all life comes from Christ. And notice what it says about this tree of life. It says that this tree is in the midst of the paradise of God. Where is it? It's in the midst. Remember what Jesus said when He greeted the church? These things saith He who dwells in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Where is the tree of life found? It's found in the midst of the paradise of God. What's in the midst of the paradise of God is Christ. Where is the source of all life found? It's when Christ is in the midst of it. That's where life is. It's in the midst. When is life experienced in its purest and fullest form? When Jesus is in the center of it. It doesn't matter if you're talking in the context of a church, or the context of a family, or the context of a goal, or a venture, or some pursuit, or whether it's talking about the life of an individual person, there is no life unless Jesus is in the midst, at the very center. This church, Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley, if we exist for any other reason than to exalt, magnify, and to know and worship Jesus Christ, then we will die and we will not experience the life that God has for us. We'll die. Everything can continue to go along according to the form of the machine, but the church inwardly will begin to die if it's about anything else. The fruit will begin to fade. Mom, Dad, your family. When will you experience life in your families when Jesus is in the midst? when He's at the very core, when He is your first love, when the subject of your conversations is Christ, when He is honored and exalted in your experiences, and when He's sought first in your actions, you're going to see life happen in your family in the way that you so desire. Christian, let me ask you, are you experiencing life? The worship team can come. Maybe you're busy about the things of God, You're busy in your family, you're serving in ministry, you're doing all the things in life. But let me ask you, are you alive? Are you experiencing the life of Christ as a reality to you? Would Jesus look at you in your life and He would say, you're doing so good. You're fruitful, you're working, you're laboring, you're persevering. You're ordering your lifestyle aright. You're not allowing evil and you're trying the spirits. and You're doing such good. Nevertheless, there's one problem that you have. You've left your first love. The motivation for why you're doing those things was lost somewhere along the way. And you're doing it now for something else. Would Jesus say that to you? Perhaps you're here tonight and you would say, I've left my first love. I've stepped aside from the very thing that I've been called into and the very pursuit that I have. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't even know Christ and you've sought for life. You've tried to find life in your goals and in your pursuits, in amassing possessions and wealth and having experiences or perhaps in relationships. And yet in all the things in which you've sought for life, you've, but left empty and wanting and lacking and saying there's got to be something, there's got to be more. Listen, the Bible says that in Him is life. And if life is to be experienced by you or by any person, it will be found when Jesus Christ is in the midst. When His love is the moving, motivating, driving factor. For that person, life will be experienced. I would encourage you tonight, if you don't know Christ personally, that you would come to know the one who will dwell in the very midst of your heart and satisfy the thing that you've been searching for. For the Christian who finds themselves burned out in the machine and in the mode of life, will you come back to Christ tonight? Will you say, Jesus, be the center of it all and renew again the zeal and the passion that I once had, the initial joy and the peace and the fruit of my salvation, the joy of my salvation, Lord, would you bring it back to me again? I wonder if tonight will be the night that you will come back to Christ. As we sing this last song and stand, my prayer for you is that you will again make Jesus the reason that you live and move and have your being. And may we as a church hold fast to that anchor that we have, Jesus Christ, that we exist for Him. We belong to Him and our source is from Him. Let's all stand.